1961, Bob Wilson's wife, Arlen, discovered Peter Kropotkin's Encyclopedia Britannica article on anarchism, and it immediately convinced them both on the value of anarchism, or libertarianism as Bob sometimes referred to it since, as he said, most people don't know what anarchism means. Hello, how are you? Welcome to another episode of the Hilaritas Podcast. I am your host, Mike Gathers. Join me as we explore the vast world of iconic writer, psychedelic psychologist, rebel philosopher, and self-proclaimed agnostic mystic, Robert Anton Wilson. Visit us at hilaritaspress.com slash podcast for show notes, links, and past episodes. In our last episode, I discussed the intersection of literature and magic in Bob's fiction with international man of mystery, Oz Fritz. In this episode, I discuss anarchist Peter Kropotkin with prolific anarchist writer Wayne Price. Wayne Price, welcome to the Hilaritas podcast. Pleasure to have you on here to talk about uh, Peter Kropotkin. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay. Do you want to give yourself a little introduction first before we dig into Kropotkin? Well, I'm a longtime uh, revolutionary libertarian socialist and uh, revolutionary anarchist. I have uh, been involved for many years in the, in various movements against the war, against wars, against uh, been involved in uh, side the in, in union movements, particularly the teachers union and uh, various uh, and in the uh, eco socialist uh, movement. I am uh, the author of uh, three books, one of which is a discussion of uh, an anarchist perspective on uh, an anarchist introduction to Marx's uh, critique of political economy. And uh, without going into my entire history, uh, I've been very involved in various activities over the years, theoretically, practically, and so on. Excellent. And um, so our subject today, Peter Kropotkin, was uh, considered one of the founders of anarchy, as I understand it. Is that, could you uh, define anarchy for us? And and, um, and I'd be curious if your definition of anarchy might differ from Kropotkin's definition of anarchy. Well, Kropotkin described his views as uh, what he called the no government, no government socialism. He saw it as the uh, extreme left wing of the socialist movement and the workers' movement, as opposed to uh, capitalism and what was even what was a big issue at the time, landlordism, and uh, at the same time, uh, what was distinctive about his views was that he blew upon was uh, also completely opposed to the state, to the state defined as the uh, the bones of the say of of government his views were distinct from that of marxism in that he did not believe that uh, a socialist cooperative free society could be uh, achieved through the state through working through the state either through 
elections or through uh, uh, overthrowing the existing state and establishing a new a new state, uh, so-called dictatorship of the proletariat. So that was what was key about uh, Kropotkin, the belief in a society without state authority, centralization. He advocated a decentralized federalism, a society organized from the bottom up by directly democratic associations, by worker-run industries, by uh, communities run by the people as much as possible, directly run democratically by the people, which would federate together to form broader and broader associations as opposed to a top-down uh, society. It was an extremely democratic view of the world, and this is the world that he wanted, and he believed it could be only be achieved by the mass struggles of ordinary people particularly the workers, but also all other, all oppressed, all those who had issues and were uh, uh, oppressed and uh, exploited uh, by the existing society. He had a very, uh, I should add, uh, ecological perspective. He mm. himself uh, had been a professional uh, geologist, and geographer, and in fact made major contributions in, in his lifetime and uh, had a perspective of a society which... Uh, would uh, integrate city and country, uh, agricultural and industrial way of life uh, as much as possible in a localized uh, communal uh, kind of society. My concept of anarchism is entirely in agreement as, as much as I understand it uh, with Kropotkin, given our understanding that the world has gone on since then, things have changed in many ways. Yeah, I um, in in studying Kropotkin, I was uh, immediately struck by just his his life experience. It was uh, fairly interesting how he uh, came from a very very well off family in Russia, um, but and worked as a geologist, as you said, made major contributions remapping Asia and and then was later imprisoned. And and while in prison, I believe he proposed some revisions to, to Ice Age history. And then, uh, interestingly enough, he was able to escape from prison. And that's just his early life, but it seems like he had, had quite a, uh, a life there, it was very brilliant. And like many of the people we cover on this podcast, uh, brilliant and, and seem to be just uh, really ahead of his time, in my impression. Does that resonate with you at all? Yes, he had a dramatic life. As you say, he was imprisoned in Russia and again in France, escaping from the Russian prison uh, in a dramatic kind of way. And yes, he came from uh, an aristocratic Russian background, and in fact, uh, very aristocratic. He was officially a, a prince mm. of the regime. And he chose to cast his lot with ordinary working people, joining the International Working Men's Association and what was, what was then the, the first international. He's uh, more well-known in the West for his scientific and, and one might say moral or abstract theoretical documents. But in fact, he was, uh, during his lifetime, certainly his youth, an active organizer, an activist, participating in uh, uh, the unions and the organization of the anarchists, putting out uh, magazines in uh, French, first in Switzerland and then in uh, France and Belgium, which, as I say, he paid a price, eventually being expelled from France and Belgium and uh, settling in, uh, in, in 
England, which at the time had a great had a reputation for taking in foreigners who were revolutionaries, as long as they weren't a threat to the British system. And he continued to be a writer, and he earned his own living uh, through scientific writings. Uh, most famous for his uh, his work on uh, mutual aid, the way that as a factor in evolution, the way that uh, but at the time people thought that the only factor in evolution was the competition. And he said that, well, that was certainly a fact. There was also the tendency of, within species of animals to cooperate, to work together. And that uh, this was the basis, he said, for the development of human beings, human beings cooperation. Human beings also had tendencies to, of course, to competition and conflict and aggression, but that there was also a long history of which can be demonstrated of tendencies towards cooperation and working together. And without that, there never would have been a successful civilization. And he studied how this worked and it, it was laid the basis both for his sense of a he tried to work out a, a naturalistic uh, ethics and at the same time a, a possibility of a cooperative kind of society right so this this bottom-up democratic society is then based on mutual aid mutual support voluntary cooperation and uh as i was studying up the the word that came up and caught my attention over and over again was decentralized so sort of an anti-hierarchical approach, I would say, or? Yes, he thought uh, people could work together best face-to-face -face, uh, rather than a system where information came from the bottom and worked its way up to the top and the top made the decisions and then worked its way back down to the bottom. He had seen a lot of that. After all, he was a prince in the, uh, working in the Russian army as a young man, but he was also so impressed when he was living in Siberia and uh, exploring the, the flora and fauna and the geography of the, of the regions, he was also impressed the way uh, the indigenous people mm. organized themselves uh, in Siberia, very, as you can imagine, a very tough environment. But they were able to organize themselves in a rational and, and uh, humane fashion and get things done in a way that was much more efficient than what he saw through the czarist bureaucracy. It doesn't mean he didn't think there could be broader organizations, but he thought that, saw them as federalist, as that in the sense of smaller groups uniting, federating together, confederating together in broader and broader fashion. But he believed that local groups would have the right to secede and to organize themselves as, as they wished. And it was through face-to-face -face direct democracy that it was most likely possible for people to develop themselves. But I don't want to give the wrong impression. He didn't believe that people were naturally just simply good, which is often used against the anarchists uh, because uh, obviously, you know, if that's true, then how could come we have so much oppression and so forth? On the contrary, he said there was both. There's the capacity for cooperation and mutual working together but there was also the capacity for competitiveness, aggression, domination, and so forth. And that, too, was an argument for anarchism, because it said that uh, people can't be trusted with power over other people. That had to be limited or done away with, because there weren't any saints on the planet who could be trusted to be the rulers 
if we say that all human beings have limited capacities for uh, for goodness, well, what? Where are you going to find these people who run the world? They too are corrupted by question of power. Nobody can be trusted with that, and therefore, it's best to have as much decentralization, pluralism, direct democracy, uh, circulation in office. Uh, uh, checks and balances, uh, all kinds of things to limit the power of some over others. Sometimes when I read Kropotkin, I think of uh, that, that Democrat, uh, Abraham Lincoln, with his, his saying, uh, uh, no no person is good enough to rule another without his consent. And Kropotkin would say, no one is good enough to rule another, period. Hmm. So did he propose, a sp- I guess what I'm curious about, if he proposed a specific system to replace what we have, and and what I couldn't come across in my research is just uh, a lot of times I hear the about the ab- abolition of property or the abolition of money, and I'm curious how that all fits into all of this. Yes, and he wrote uh, various books, particularly The Conquest of Bread and uh, a couple of others, which uh, discussing, well, how after, say, uh, immediately after a revolution, how a big city comparable, say, Paris of his time, could be rapidly reorganized. Uh, working people should uh, uh, seize the uh, everything from the land to the major forms of production, the means of production, the industry, and so forth, take it away from the rich and powerful. And then they themselves would organize themselves to uh, continue production. He suggested that uh, people in a big city would, uh, it might be possible to work, say, half a day in order to get the basics, the necessities of life, and then have another half a day in which people might work, another five hours, say, people might work for uh, luxuries, things that were not necessities. And then, uh, and this would all be done cooperatively. Necessities would be based on uh, people just deciding, well, this is, those who do the work get basic. You have to do the work, get things done, basically. Exactly how it would be done, he didn't spell out, because it would be up to the people themselves in Germany. Mm. You know, and we know that in, in, in times of crisis and emergencies, people pull together and organize themselves and uh, manage things. And he thought that it was possible for people to do that in the broader times. Uh, he studied how people had organized in the Middle Ages at the and the, the guild system, people that were organizing the guilds to produce the goods of society through self-governing uh, institutions, workers' groups. And they thought the same thing could be done here, and people would then coordinate with each other and, and decide you know, just exactly how, how to do that. So he left it kind of open-ended in that regard. To a degree, yes. It had to be. Is that... Uh, of course, we're in a very different situation than his. On the one hand, people want more. Our standard of living is much higher than what you expect uh, as a basic standard in, uh, say, the revolutionary Paris. But on the other hand, uh, our level of technology is so much uh, further along than it was back then. It's pretty clear uh, we could organize society to produce the goods that we need. Uh, with very little, uh, the problem might be more uh, like in uh, William Morris's News from Nowhere, 
people wanting work, looking for things to do, might be even more of a problem than the question of how do, how do you get enough people to do any job. Mm, so it's, it's almost like the acceptance that, that people are looking for things to do and they're going to want to work. Is that? Yeah. That Well, that to, yes, to a certain degree. People are naturally productive. People are naturally active. It's only in our society which there's this vast this gap between uh, work and play. The possibility of a more creative society. I mean, there's some things that people don't, don't want to do, but other things uh, that, that lots of people want to do. And everybody has a certain creative abilities. Well, only a few, perhaps, of the other have the capacity to be the great artists of society. Everybody has the possibility of being uh, creative. And the, the gap between work and play might will evolve to uh, essentially everyone is capable of doing crafts, you know, a kind of a craft approach to, to society. And uh, we would decide how to do that. He emphasized the capacities of uh, in modern industry, modern for him, of decentralization of small scale production that was nevertheless the more efficient. Same thing is you know, perhaps true today, as we, we know. Uh, people tend to assume that uh, centralized mass production is the most efficient form of, uh, of production, but actually uh, the capitalists produce and develop their industry uh, not to be the most efficient in terms of producing goods, but to be the most efficient in the making their profits. And uh, if it's more efficient to get cheap labor in China or Vietnam, they'll do that, even though there's no reason the same work couldn't be done in, you know, the local neighborhood, neighbors in North America. Why do they go all around the world? I mean, there's some things that have to go, have to be organized on a world scale. Uh, things involving, say, rare earths or whatnot. But most things, that's not true. Most things, that's not necessarily true. And the, the cost of the uh, internationalization of uh, having things uh, produced all around the world is uh, and then shipping it all around and the parts together and then bringing it back and then putting it together and then Selling it in the local kiosk is uh, rarely taken into account. I don't know if you've uh, read, uh, you know, uh, more recent decentralists like Ralph Borsodi and uh, others, but uh, they agree on, the, on this particular point. Borsodi was not uh, an anarchist communist, but the basic point of decentralization and local production and integrating industry and agriculture uh, were similar. Hmm. So not just more of a... a decentralized government that brings things down to the local level. We said government, I guess that's not the right word, a decentralized method of cooperation as a substitute for government, perhaps, but then also just as in terms of production, um, maybe decentralization isn't the right word, but bringing this all down to a local level. As much as possible. Yeah. Some things can't, couldn't be done that way. As I say, instead of course they would, federations and international cooperation and so forth. Uh, but to the extent that it could be done, uh, yes, the emphasis would be, the bias, so to speak, would be on making things uh, at a human scale at a local level. Mm. There was a quote that uh, I, I got somewhere that really struck me. Um, Communism and anarchy are therefore two terms of evolution which complete each other. 
Well, because the way communism, uh, the way he was using communism, of course, this was well before the rise of Stalinism. He meant uh, societies in which um, a lack of or minimal of minimum of coercion, mm. uh, without uh, the police and the, and the military on the one hand, and without uh, people being forced to uh, to work uh, to avoid starvation. Where they take orders from bosses even in our in our society we have to uh people may go to vote once every two years or six years or something or um, some choice some uh, agent of the rich uh, but uh, people most most adults spend most of their waking hours uh, taking orders from somebody with whom they have no choice in that uh, in uh, deciding who they are so to replace that with a democratic, bottom-up, self-governing form of economy, that is what he meant by communism, is uh, mm. perfectly equivalent with replacing, getting rid of the state and uh, replacing it with, with self-governing communes and communities. This, uh, to me, brings to mind just a much more uh, participatory um, requirement in terms of... Uh, what am I trying to say? Just there's an expectation that uh, each of us get more involved. Is that fair? Yes. yes. It is a conception of a participatory democracy, a participatory economy in which people are not just uh, elect somebody to be their, their rulers for a number of years and then go back to work and taking orders, but one which uh, every day. We participate in making decisions about how we run our lives. In fact, one reason why they can permit the kind of limited democracy that we have is because people have no real training or experience in directly democratically deciding on their lives. They may pick what uh, color of car they, they want or what kind of toothpaste they want. But in terms of uh, sitting down or briefly before each workday uh, in your shop, your unit, industrial unit or office, and saying, well, in terms of our broad plan, what are we, what are we doing today? How are we organizing our work today? What do we expect to keep have an outcome? I say, that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And going ahead and then doing it. Uh, that would be a participatory radically democratic uh, kind of society. It's really uh, a society that needs that's rooted in direct participation and direct democracy, even if it has some kind of delegates to the federation, uh, to the broader associations and so forth. The fact that people have a, a regular, indeed daily experience of directly democratically making decisions changes everything means that uh, it's a possibility of a real freedom and a real self-governing self-managed society and if everybody is involved in governing then there's no government mm. there's no institution over and above the rest of society there's no separate it's it's the same the whole it's the people themselves democratically is making the decisions and whatever structure there is, the overall structure is 
the organization of the people themselves, the former working class. I say former because it's no longer a separate class, a separate layer, one layer of people that does the work and one layer of people that gives the orders and owns the means of destruction. It's more that anti-hierarchical um, paradigm there where we're all equal. You said something a, a second ago, uh, you used the question, what do we do today? And that brought up to me this idea that that this uh, voluntary cooperation and mutual aid also allows for a lot more spontaneity and creativity. Yeah, um, although people will have to, you know, if, you, if, if, if the uh, local bike collective has decided to fix bicycles, has made a commitment to fix the local bicycles and provide enough bicycles for the uh, local community, then they have that commitment and they have to decide, oh, well, how are we going to carry this out? And they have to work out a plan for it. And, and uh, they come in that day and say, all right, in terms of what plan is what we said we would do, uh, are we on the spot? Uh, well, how do we organize it? Uh, Joe does this and Mary does that. And, uh, we've agreed to do this. So it's a combination. Some things are more spontaneous. Uh, there will have to be a, a deliberate effort to break down the, the, the barriers between order giving and order taking, to have, uh, uh, have people rotate and jobs and uh, jobs be organized in such a way and to, to, to work at it. As a, a retired psychologist, among other things, I was a school teacher, then I was a school psychologist. But it's interesting in the literature of occupational psychology, the evidence overwhelming that the more that the working people participate in making decisions, the more they break down the barriers between specialties, the more uh, self-management there is, the more they move towards that the greater productivity there is, the less turnover, the less, uh, the more uh, inventiveness that uh, comes out of the workers. Uh, the logic of this is in fact towards worker self-management, but of course, uh, that's not what uh, capitalism is, is about. When I, when I read a lot of this material, particularly Kropotkin's interest in indigenous people, um that speaks to me about uh what i would just call the collective and when we talk about you know feudal or industrial capitalist society that speaks to me more about the emphasis on the individual it, would you say kropotkin is advocating a return to the indigenous tribal collective or is it something new that's evolving out of this that's maybe a synthesis of both the collective and the individual does that make sense i uh, he tends to see it as a dialectic of uh, mutual collective activity uh, interacting with individual uh, creativity and uh, and and sort of a back and forth the individual only is, exists out of the collective. There's no such thing as isolated individuals. You can't think without uh, using uh, language, for example. 
which is collective product, spontaneous collective product. From the same time, uh, a collective cannot function. It is an association of individuals. And it requires the creativity and, and, and initiative of individuals. So uh, I don't think you would accept an either or. And this is following in the footsteps of Bakunin, who uh, emphasized that individuals are, uh, it's, it's like we're nodes in, in a field, these modern, mm -hmm. modern language. And uh, there, there is no society without individuals. There's no individuals without society. Uh, there can't really be an either or. Uh, they want as much individual freedom as possible. They want the freedom of individuals without coercion and domination. And from the freedom comes collective cooperation. That's the whole point of mutual aid, that these are not alternatives. And uh, just as we have to watch out for things going too far, there's no uh, God-given uh, absolute that's going to, you know, you can be sure that uh, nobody will dominate anybody or try to. Uh, it's a matter of... Uh, experience and experiment and, and uh, conflict and uh, eternal vigilance is the price of uh, liberty as the, as the saying goes uh sure in some groups there will be uh in Kropotkin's conception there will be people pushing authoritarian direction then others will be free to resist that uh it's a very fluid conception rather than you know it's not like you know freedom is something achieved in that and that's it in an absolute kind of sense so almost uh you know if a continual struggle is the right word but uh, we always have to be vigilant then to maintain this uh cooperative approach to freedom yeah. i i love this idea of a dialectic between the mutual collective and individual create creativity this kind of both and situation as opposed to the either or as you mentioned it that really makes a lot of sense to me i guess that's where i'm getting at is as we move from the collective to the individual to a dialectic between the two um which it seems like to me we're we're doing uh in our own way at the moment i don't know if you agree with that but what who is doing um that's a good question maybe that's more wishful thinking on my part but i guess i have this impression that we're in the middle of a paradigm shift and we're moving towards this dialectic of the individual and the collective as a society um i'm just kind of thinking out loud i think but um and maybe it's more wishful thinking but i don't know it's hard to say it's uh in many ways yes there's movements towards greater freedom and greater self-determination uh at the very same time there's a, a resistance to that which is of course inevitable because after all we still have capitalism we still have a state we still have a, an anti-ecological society that's uh, threatening to destroy us all and we have forces that are 
committed. It's it's uh, sorry, upsetting to see people stand up and insist on their right to be slaves, uh, their right to be exploited, and the right to be oppressed. Of course, they hope to be part of the oppressors, to be on the side, at least, of the oppressors. Uh, we see this right now between the political situation in the United States, the struggle between the far right on the one hand and the center on the other, with uh, no real left. Uh, you know, what there is at the left is uh, a handful of uh, state socialists. The concept of uh, there's been a growth of the left and there's been a growth of uh, anarchism in particular, of people who want real freedom. Uh, but that's still very weak and very confused, I think. They should all read Kropotkin. <laughs> exactly. Well, you sent me an article about uh, Kropotkin and his position on war, specifically war, war I'm sorry, World War One, And uh, he, as I understood it, was very uh, pro- uh, for the Allies during World War One, and um, my interpretation of that was that he um, saw it as the lesser of two evils. He wasn't necessarily a proponent of the Allies and the state, but he just felt their position was uh, more positive than the the Axis. Is that accurate to you? Or I'm curious about this uh, support of war. Well, first of all, in terms of support of war, uh, few anarchists were have ever been have been absolute pacifists. Uh, Tolstoy being, of course, the great example of that being an uh, absolute pacifist uh, who was also an anarchist although he didn't use the label uh, but when World War One broke out uh, the big majority of anarchists opposed the war on both all sides regarding it as a struggle between imperialist powers uh, unlike the Marxists most of whom supported the war of their countries but uh, Kropotkin became as it was a supporter of the Allies. Uh, yes, he regarded it as a lesser evil, I suppose. Uh, although he had a really gung ho, uh, enthusiastic attitude mm. to the Allied side, and became uh, quite enthusiastic and, and uh, supporting them, and hoping for their victory, and so forth. And uh, he organized this group, turned out a very small group of those who thought like him and agreed to oppose uh, opposing the. They saw Germany as the major evil. And this wasn't even World War II uh, with the Nazis. This uh, persuade themselves that uh, only a victory of the uh, Entente, the Allies, would uh, lead forward, open things up for. Uh, for greater democracy and eventual anarchism. Uh, other anarchists, such as uh, 
Malatesta, Enrico Malatesta, the great anarchist, who was a uh, uh, next generation younger friend of, of both Bakunin and then Kabatkin, uh, vigorously opposed their point of view. I think part of the problem was uh, he tended to see, didn't make clear enough distinction between a, a war between a, a two imperialist powers, which one should oppose both sides, and a war between an imperialist power and a oppressed nation, uh, England versus uh, Ireland, or, or India, or Russia versus Poland, or so on at the time. Uh, and I didn't see that these are really very different kind of things. It's one thing to be on the side of an oppressed nation, even if one disagrees with the government or opposes the government. Uh, but uh, it's another thing to take sides in a struggle between imperialist forces, of which both sides were in World War One. He loved France, but France uh, ruled about 15% of the world. The French bourgeoisie rather ruled about 15% of the world's uh, population. So uh, sometimes this has been used lately as a reason to reject all anarchist support for oppressed nations and therefore to uh, refuse to take sides in the war between uh, Russia and Ukraine. That's a whole other issue, of course, but uh, uh, I think that's a mistake. The uh, it's, in fact, it's a very mistaken way that Rukwakin was making to not see the difference between inter-imperialist struggles and the struggle between an imperialist power and uh, an oppressed people, which are the Ukrainians or the Russians are trying to wipe off the map. So if we were to speculate, do you want to take a gander at what his position would be on the Russia-Ukraine situation today? Uh... Hard, well, I would say he would certainly be on the side of the Ukrainians. He supported, he did support oppressed nations. He did support uh, the right of national self-determination. There's, uh, and so did people who disagreed with him on World War I, like Malatasta, who was also a defender of mm -hmm. the nations, who he specifically spoke out for the, the Cubans and the Cuban uh, struggle for uh, independence from Spain, their war against Spain, and he, he uh, supported, he gave, uh, gave uncritical, he gave uh, full support to the uh, uh, Libyans who were being uh, attacked by the Spanish, and by the, Itali sorry, the Italian Empire, even though Italy was uh, more advanced, so forth. It wasn't because he liked, like Malatesta liked the uh, uh, the Libyan uh, semi-feudal uh, rule, but rather he was on their side, he was on the side of the oppressed. Uh, there are those who say that anarchists uh, don't support uh, national liberation struggles, uh, and there's many haven't, but uh, it's also true that from the beginning, leading anarchists have, have taken the side of the oppressed and the oppressed nations uh, as opposed to, uh, uh, to thinking that, well, it's just states. Yeah, I mean, maybe the people may want states. Part of national self-determination is the right of the people to choose their uh, their own form of government, their own form of uh, 
self-government in their own form of the econ economy and so forth. And if the Poles, for example, I mean, if the Ukrainians right now uh, accept a state and they accept uh, capitalism, that's their choice. And I'm not going to refuse to be in solidarity with them when somebody else comes in and, and uh, an imperialist force comes in and, and uh, blows up their cities and their villages and massacres their people and, and drives them from their homes and has to seize their land and makes official announcements that they're not re even really a, a people uh, and wants to suppress their language and their culture and so forth and tries to wipe them out. I think that uh, both Kropotkin and Malatesta and Bakun would all have been on the side of the oppressed uh, nation that's uh, being attacked despite our opposition without without giving any support to the uh, capitalist government, uh, getting capitalist oligarchs, uh, their allies among NATO imperialists. Uh, we don't support them, but we're in solidarity with their people their fight for freedom and and uh, most uh, almost all the anarchists in ukraine have taken the position and supported the ukrainians against the russians it, it seems like where that gets complicated is that ukraine and russia becomes a bit of a proxy war where it's really the united states versus russia and um I don't know what to say about that other than it just gets complicated. Yeah, that's true. And that's a background factor. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the Ukrainians have the right to get arms from wherever they can get arms. Whatever their during the uh, Vietnam War, Vietnam US War, I'm showing my age now. Uh, we Anti-Stalinist uh, radicals uh, criticized, uh, were opposed to, in fact, the Stalinist regimes in the North Vietnam and uh, Russia and so forth. But we never criticized the Vietnamese for taking arms, getting arms from Russia and to fight against the, the United States. That wasn't, uh, that didn't rule out. They had the right, as an oppressed country, to get arms wherever they could. There, there are times when, uh, shall we say, the interest of an imperialist power and the, and the interest of an oppressed nation uh, uh, run alongside each other. Uh, and then you have to determine, is it being overwhelmed by the imperialist interaction? During World War I, for example, uh, all the socialists agreed that uh, even though Serbia Serbia's struggle for independence had sort of, you know, been the, set it off. Uh, nobody supported that. It was overwhelmed. Serbia's interests, interest in the Serbian people was overwhelmed by the war. And we couldn't support the, the Serbia because that was just part of World War One. But uh, during World War Two, there was also other issues. Uh, uh, there was a big dispute among revolutionaries about whether to support uh, China against Japan. Clearly, the Chinese-Japanese war, once after Pearl Harbor particularly, that was part of World War II, the imperialist drive by the United States to take over from Japan and rule. On the other hand, the Chinese people had the right to their own country. Uh, 
and uh, the, the war against the, the Japanese laid things open for at least greater independence for China. And so many continue to support China as against, uh, even though it was connected to the uh, World War II. So that's always an issue. So it's a, you know, everything is, everything's concrete. You say, what's actually happening in this particular war? How do you actually balance things? If the United States troops or NATO troops were actually getting involved on the ground in Ukraine, I would say it's now, it's no longer, it's uh, the proxy side is, is overwhelmed. Mm. I don't want to support either side. But as it is, it's the Ukrainian people who are finally dying, even though they get arms from uh, imperialist allies. So, for them that seems fair fair take there what, what i noticed is that um well what 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 came up for me when i was reading that article you sent is this uh kind of an idea of war versus revolution and that um anarchists as a general statement seem to be more in favor of revolution from within um is that a fair statement yeah i would say so uh on the other hand it's hard to make a sharp you know dividing line mm. uh, there are certainly there are people in ukraine who are pro-russian uh, and uh, the Russians are claiming that the Ukraine is part of Russia. So, you know, it's hard to make the, you know, the, the sharp line if, uh, uh, and uh, the Vietnam War, to give you an example again, uh, began as a apparent civil war between the communist side and the, the, the pro-Western side. So it's, it's often... In our interconnected war world, as you were just pointing out a moment ago, it's, it's they're all all interconnected. And you have to make make an analysis. Certainly, what we are for is not the people fighting for their own freedom. Uh, if we had uh, we could get into a whole discussion about the history of, for example, the uh, Spanish Civil War in the '30s, uh, which was both uh, internet. Affected internationally, the, the other sides that were going to be world side two sides of World War Two uh, were got were involved. But at the same time, there was still a major fight between fascist Spaniards and uh, the anti-fascist Spaniards, including the, the working class and anarchists. It was interesting to me. Um that this, and I'm not a very good historian in this regard, but the article asserted that World War One was a really, uh, came to a conclusion, uh, not through the fighting of the two powers, but through internal revolution within those two powers. Well, there were, yeah, there was an interaction to this. It was because of the misery of the fighting because of the destruction, because of the starvation and the blocking, blockading, breaking international uh, trade, uh, 
that caused the misery that resulted in uh, revolutions breaking out, particularly the Russian Revolution, of course, uh. which withdrew the Russians from the from the uh, Allied side, and then eventually the Central Powers, including Germany, particularly Germany, had massive uprisings in the military. They just want, people just won't fight anymore. They didn't see any point in fighting, and they overthrew the Kaiser and the monarchy and uh, withdrew from the war. Fortunately, it didn't go all the way to a socialist revolution. Uh, however you want to define that, um, but it was revolutions that broke out at the end of the war, and those who supported had had uh, Potkin had supported the Allies and uh, saying, "Oh, it's unreasonable to say that the way to end a war is to revolution." In fact, it was revolution that played at least a major role in finally ending the war. Revolutions broke out everywhere. They, even uh, the French army had a massive mutiny, which was put down by the government eventually through a massive uh, shooting of uh, soldiers mm. by the government. And this was followed by, you know, we, we don't think of it as part of the revolution, but the United States had a major general strike in, uh, in Seattle and uh, Massive up, upturn the labor movement after the war. Switching gears a bit here, um, where would you say Kropotkin's ideas and anarchy in general are today? Is it still pretty widely accepted the way he presents it, or is it a as uh, and I, I guess I'm saying this with kind of the general understanding that that there's a bunch of different strains of anarchist thought um yes uh, would you say kropotkin still holds ground today as uh, i think you said earlier you, you're pretty much in agreement with them is it that... well that's an interesting question uh on the one hand his writings are still uh relatively widely uh shown uh, distributed uh, partly because he writes clearly and he discussions of the uh, central theoretical aspects of what anarchism is uh mutual aid and uh, the uh fields factories and workshops discussing how society and decentralized technology and integrative technology could work uh, is still uh, produced and re-edited and others, other things he wrote. And uh, Ian McKay has a collection of his writings that's uh, a big fat book that's well worth reading, including McKay's introduction, as well as a selection of his writings. So on one hand, I think uh, he is uh, very influential among anarchists. On the other hand, uh, it's, not clear as you know what anarchists mean by anarchism today you know in terms of uh, his rejection of uh, individualist uh, terror uh, the the so-called insurrectionists who want to act more individualist and uh, directly confront the police without mass support 
is uh, not so popular, though it should be. And in fact, the whole concept of a working class revolution is unclear in terms of support, given the, which is not surprising, of course, given the low level of working class struggle, although that has been greatly increased in recent years. Uh, so there's a lot of question. A lot of people find that hard to accept. It's more abstract. Uh, the uh, but its influential background, I think, is uh, very much so. Uh, sometimes they try to reinterpret him as in a sort of a reformist kind of fashion, because he did emphasize, he did talk about how we could look around us and we can see aspects of mutual aid of people getting along and working together and institutions forming. And people say, yeah, well, that's true too in our society. And some people draw the conclusion, well, all we need is just to gradually expand these aspects of mutual aid, maybe deliberately build up cooperatives and bike, go, bike clubs and uh, consumer co-ops and so on until they expand and they take over society and replace capitalism and the state. Uh, I think that wasn't his perspective. Uh, and I don't think it's a very realistic perspective. So that's the question. The question I'm saying is between the revolutionary anarchism and a more reformist gradualist perspective. And again, this perspective, the conflict between those who think of this individual or small group activities and those who see the need to build a mass popular movement. That's also a conflict in which his, his views are not necessarily the majority right now. I happen to agree with him on both points, mass activity and the need for, at some point, the need for a revolution. But not everybody does. And that makes for interesting discussions. Mm, certainly. Mm. Well, um, boy. I'm not sure where else to go here. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion about all this? Uh, let me just say that, uh, going on your, your previous point, uh, while Marxists are, after all, might call themselves after their founder, and there's no doubt, at least in my mind, that Marx was a towering genius, made major contributions. But anarchists don't call themselves Kropotkinians or, or Bakuninists or uh, Emma Goldmanites. Uh, it's, which is why the fact that uh, a great teacher like Kropotkin could go off the rails in, say, in imperialist World War One, and uh, that doesn't mean that we can't learn from other great contributions that he made, uh, because we are in Kropotkinites. We're anarchists. And we learn from our teachers, and we build on them. We stand on the shoulders of giants, and, as the saying goes, and therefore see further. Therefore we see further than the giants do. Uh, and we can learn from them. And it's uh, there is a sort of an anti-theoretical trend among many anarchists, partly because this is uh, America, where we're very empiricist and anti-theoretical, 
as a general kind of thing. But uh, it is very valuable. There is a great deal to be learned from the early anarchist writers, from Proudhon and uh, Bakunin and Kropotkin in particular, and Malatesta and others who came after them. And we should, without uh, seeing ourselves as, as uh, acolytes, as uh, following, uh, you know, orthodox readers of the canon and so on, the way some of my Marxist friends can uh, quote uh, pages from uh, Capital. But uh, it's well worth uh, reading uh, these people, studying these people, and uh, carrying on their work. Because essentially, the system is still a system. The state is the state. Capitalism is capitalism, despite the many changes that have happened in the last hundred or so years. Uh, but the basics of the system, unfortunately, are still there. And uh, therefore, those who learned about it and studied about it and struggled to find alternatives, they have a lot to say and we have a lot to learn from them. Mm. I think that's a great way to end. Excellent. Thank you, Wayne. I appreciate your time today. It's You're been... Thank you for having me on. Yeah, great chatting with you. Uh, is there anything you'd like to uh, promote before we leave here? Uh, I have uh, several books that can be looked up on uh, on, on Amazon. If you must use Amazon or other sources. Uh, as I say, I went on Marxist economics, went on called the uh, on the abolition of the state, which goes through the background of the nature of the state and the need to overcome it. And both uh, I try to integrate what we can learn from both from great anarchists as well as from Marx and Engels. And uh, I ask people to take take a look at them and let me know what they think. And I've written. Uh, a great deal of comments, uh, which can be found are many articles, which can be found on the Anarchist Library, for example, Anarchist Library in the Wayne Price, as well as under uh, the anarchismo.net site. So, uh, and I'm always open for people to comment uh, to write to write to me, uh, drwdprice at aol.com. Um, I'll be happy to answer any questions and discuss any differences of opinion. Fantastic. Thank you. We'll include links to that in, in our notes or show notes for the podcast and uh, encourage people to reach out. Wayne, it was a pleasure. Thanks for uh, being on with me here today. Thank you, Mike. Have a good day. You too. That concludes our episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to Wayne Price for taking the time to chat. Thank you to Christina Pearson of the Robert Anton Wilson Trust and Richard Rossa of Laritas Press for giving the green light on all of this. And thank you to Ryan Reeves for putting it all together. Our next episode, releasing on the 23rd of February, will feature another anarchist, John Zerzan. Until then, I'm your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor e hilaritas. <laughs>